0: Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today, we're talking five myths about protein. All right, Nicole. Should I just lift list them all off?
1: No, we do this every time. <laughs> every time we have a list, I say wait, so that they have to listen to the whole podcast to get all five. Oh man! So start with number one.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen. Today we're talking myths about protein and some of the misconceptions around this macronutrient and I do think it's super important to talk about this topic because protein is a very important macronutrient for you to consider and it's become very popularized and I think that there's been some negative potential negative feedback on protein because it's becoming popular popularized people are starting to get be be afraid of like oh well you know what if people are eating too much protein like what is the effect on the body in terms of eating too much protein. But I want to start by just highlighting the importance of protein, really, because, you know, we talked briefly about the importance in terms of your resting metabolic rate and weight loss and fat loss and increasing lean muscle, right? Because muscle is made out of protein, right? You Mm -hmm. are what you eat. You want to be muscular. You have to eat more essentially animal muscle. That's how I look at it, unless you're vegan or vegetarian, which we'll get into them in this episode as well. The word protein comes from the Greek I don't know how to pronounce this, proteose, which means of first importance. This reflects the key role that proteins play in the life process. And why that's important is because this is what I always say. Next to water, Mm -hmm. protein is the most abundant nutrient that your body is made up of, right? Mm -hmm. Your body in in any life stage is made up of about, let's say, 60 to 70% water, which Mm kind of is interesting because everything on this planet like this planet is made up of like 70 percent water so just kind of shows you how like integrated you are and connected you are with everything uh, that everything else around you because you know we're all beings that are made up of 70 percent water now outside of that we're made up of largely protein Right. And then we have our bones, calcium, and then we've got our blood and you know what makes up our blood and electrolytes and vitamins and minerals and all these different things. Mm -hmm. But protein is the second highest component. And it's not just your muscle tissue. It's your organs are made up of protein. Mm -hmm. Your hair, your skin, your nails, those are all protein. Your hormones are all Mm -hmm. long strands of protein. Your DNA, these chemical messengers in your body, those are all made up of protein. So The value of consuming adequate protein, it's there. It's super important. So let's get into this episode. And now that we know why protein is important, let's talk about some of the myths around protein. Okay. And the first myth that I want to talk about, and Nicole, recently, uh, Jillian Michaels got kind of shit on for some of this this stuff on all All over over. social Mm -hmm. media. And she was like, well, too much protein is bad because X, Y, and Z. And then all of like the lay Norton's and like his camp and, and his school of thought, which, you know, we kind of align with that school of thought mostly. Mm-hmm. Right. They just all yeah, came out of the woodwork, And they're like memes about Jillian Michaels. And, you know, it's these celebrity trainers that just don't really have a background yeah. and they just get get a name for themselves by. I mean, listen, biggest. He's hardcore.
1: The reason why they came at her so hard wasn't necessarily Partially was the claim that she was making, but it also was that in her post, I believe it was on Instagram, she didn't back up why she felt that way. Like a lot of the times, you know, if you have something that backs it up, people are less likely to attack you, even if it's wrong, (laughs) because at least you know the why or at least you have a thought process. If the why is wrong, they'll attack that. But she just basically like went around the was very roundabout about why.
0: She tiptoed around it. Yeah, she was so like, oh, like well, all over because this and that. And I basically don't something along the lines of like she said
1: something like, I don't need to get into that. I, yeah, here. I don't
0: want to bore you with all the scientific yeah, yeah. details. And it's <laughs> like, well, no, please. And like, please us. bore us.
1: Yes. Where are you get,
0: know. where are you getting this information from? Right. Mm-hmm. And then all all the people come out with their posts uh, with actual data. Yeah. So yeah, she let's got
1: it from all all directions. <laughs> yeah.
0: So let's get into myth number one, okay, which is. I think she brought this up kidneys and Mm -hmm. then the next one, which is bones. But let's get into myth number one, which is too much protein is bad for your kidneys. Mm -hmm. So it has previously been hypothesized that high protein diets adversely affect the kidneys because of the stress required to process proteins. Right. So when you consume more protein, you have more waste coming from protein. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have more creatinine being filtered through your kidneys and you have more Uh, urea being filtered through your kidneys, your body has to get rid of excess nitrogen that, uh, you know, protein is a unique macronutrient in that it is bound to nitrogen where, you know, carbs and fat aren't. And that nitrogen group has to be removed and you have to digest and be able to break down that protein that you're eating into amino acids and so on and so forth. So the increased protein consumption is said to lead to a state of uh, glomerular hyperfiltration, uh, which is a state in which the kidneys face increased pressure in order to filter and remove this waste product from uh, eating more protein. Mm -hmm. Is this from
1: animal like are they specifying like an animal based protein?
0: It's it's protein in general. There there are some specifics uh, in that there are certain like beef will Mm -hmm. affect filtration more and animal products will affect filtration slightly more than plant based products. I did see that in the research. But in terms of kidney function, right? So when we're talking about kidney function, the research analyzes kidney function uses using GFR, which is glomerular filtration rate, which is like an estimation that they'll use, and they'll say, okay, well, like how much are we filtering, right? And if GFR goes down, that means kidney disease, right? I think if you're below sixty, before below a level of sixty, if I if I remember correctly. Don't quote me on that. I don't remember the exact number, but there's a a certain threshold where if you're below that, that's going to signify kidney disease. And this is also one of the ways that we measure the five stages of kidney disease, of renal disease. Yeah. We measure them by saying, okay, well, what is your GFR, your glomerular filtration rate? And that's going to tell us which stage of kidney disease you're in. Mm hmm. It's just basically GFR is an indication of how effectively the kidney is filtering the blood in order to remove this waste from the body.
1: Well, that and- makes sense. So someone that is healthy should not have an issue, but someone that has kidney issues this may affect them.
0: Correct? Yes. And but some of this information is kind of deceiving because, you know, I I saw there's there was a study from the harvard website it was the, the harvard gazette and the title of the study was too much protein may cause reduced kidney function but then you read into mm-hmm. the results of the study and it was done on women and the results of the study were that well in women that had mild kidney disease exactly it affected their kidneys and in women with perfectly healthy kidneys there was no impact whatsoever. Now, I don't want to say that there's no immediate impact, right? Because I did see some data in the research that referred to the size of your kidneys mm-hmm. and how your, your kidneys size will increase when you're consuming a high protein diet. But what we also show is that this is reversible so mm-hmm. that it will decrease in size if, if you start you- eating low protein again.
1: Right. Right.
0: Right. So what this shows is that it you are not causing any irreversible damage on the kidneys by consuming more protein, You're just
1: making it work harder.
0: So, yeah. So what this tells me is that this isn't really a issue with, hey, you know what? We're causing damage to the kidneys. It's you have an adaptation that your body's adapting and filtering. Less through all the protein that you're taking in. And then your body will readapt when you, you know, just like anything else, just like yeah. metabolism adapts when you eat yeah. more or eat less, right? Your mm-hmm. body just has these adaptation mechanisms. You give your body more protein. Obviously,
1: pro- more protein
0: It's going to have to filter yeah. out that protein, but that's not showing long-term damage. Now, I do think some of the issues around this and why this is still potentially, quote, in debate is that it's very hard in nutrition to do long-term studies on this stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the studies that I have here referenced is a seven-day study. It's titled, do regular high-protein diets have potential health risks on kidney function in athletes? And what the results of the study was, was that up to 2.8 grams per kilogram of body weight of daily protein intake. Mm -hmm. It says, we cannot detect any serious harmful effects from high daily protein intake clinical measures of renal function do not appear to indicate renal stress in trained athletes who consume a high protein diet as measured in this study. Now, the issue is this is only seven days, right? so what happens long-term? But a giant meta-analysis that reviewed 40 different studies showed that there isn't As far as we know right now, there isn't long-term damage to the kidneys. There's no damage to the kidneys. There's no long-term changes to the kidneys when you're consuming higher protein diets. Now, Mm -hmm. listen, we know all the way up to 2.8 grams per kilogram, which is a lot of protein. That's more than your body weight in protein. Yeah. We know all the way up to that, that, I mean, you're pretty good. So the fear around that, I just think is unsubstantiated.
1: It all goes back to, I mean... you know, everyone that's listening, everyone knows I love research. Jerome sends me all kinds of stuff to read. I think it's amazing. But then you also have to think of the flip side, which is putting it into practice with your clients and the people that are actually doing that or eating the protein. I've eaten as I'm 130 pounds. I've eaten as low as 100 grams of protein a day. And I've eaten as high as 250 grams of protein a day. And I have to tell you, the higher protein, the better I feel, and the, the incredible benefits to my physique. So, while the studies are great, and I respect that very much, I also put it into practice in my own system and see what actually changes. I never had any issues eating more. I actually felt better and looked better. So, and I certainly performed better. So,
0: also, let me just kind of say this: since Nicole, since you're bringing in the the practical side of things, mm-hmm. right, are we more worried about protein on somebody's kidneys? Or are we more worried about blood sugar? Because the last time I checked Mm. having issues with blood sugar or having hypertension, hypertension is one of the worst things for your kidneys or high blood sugar. Yeah. Is one of the worst things for your kidneys Mm -hmm. over time. Like if you're type two diabetic, what are you at risk for? You're at risk for kidney disease. Right. And a lot of these people in a clinical setting that are ending up in the hospital with kidney issues, guess what? They're diabetic too, right? And guess what one of the things that helps to control your blood sugar are? Protein. Protein, right? So you have to also kind of look at it from a practical standpoint and say, okay, well, what's worse for this person? What they're eating like now or eating a diet that's slightly higher in protein?
1: Yeah, which is also always my question when I read stuff like this is, well, what were they doing before? And What was, what's their health status when they come into it? I I end up having more questions. This is why research is hard for me to read because I'm like, well, wait, hold on, go back. I need to know more instead of just kind of this. I feel like some of them are very general, but you put into practice with all the clients that I've worked with. I feel like I could do a case by case study on all of the people that I've worked with, both men and women from a high protein higher protein diet. And it doesn't have to be like crap protein, like, which I know we're going to get to like the types of protein and the difference, but.
0: Nicole, since you bring that up, the interesting thing is that some of the studies in this giant meta-analysis that I looked over, uh, also noted that they didn't test. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you do this? I guess it's like not a standard, but they didn't test GFR before. And after the study, they only tested it after. And then it's like, okay, how do you you know? you you have to look at the before, like maybe that person's GFR was lower to begin with. Yeah. Right. Or was modified to begin with. Like you have to do a test from before and after. And mm-hmm. some of these I, there were a ton of studies that were excluded from the uh, meta analysis and systemic yeah. review that I looked over. But, you know, you have to be looking at the right things and you have to be looking for the right things when you're talking about, you know, what like what's a before and after.
1: Yeah, exactly. So,
0: yeah. Let's move along to the next one. Okay. Too much protein is bad for your bones. And this I think was one on the Jillian Michaels list where she talked <laughs> about protein and was just completely unsubstantiated uh, by the research. Now, this is an old school thought process and I just yeah, think Yeah, I have to I, say I've,
1: n- I've never really I've never heard this one. You're the you're the first person to bring this one to my attention.
0: Well, Jillian Michaels brought it up. Now, I know
1: but I mean prior in our conversations.
0: This is the This is a very old thought. And this just kind of just goes to show you like, hey, like you really have to be up to date with your research uh, Mm -hmm. and and really be accurate and accept that, you know, if I said maybe 20 years ago, too much protein is bad for my bones, I would have to retract that statement today. Yeah. So early research purported that an increase in protein intake, particularly from animal products, increased dietary acid load because protein is acidic. It's not Mm -hmm. neutral. It's not alkaline. Right. And in order to maintain homeostasis, the body would then have to create a buffer using calcium. And where does Mm -hmm. calcium come from? Your body stores calcium in your bones. So this has been thought to increase the rate of bone mineral loss, potentiating the risk of osteoporosis. Furthermore, increased protein intake has been associated with increased calcium excretion. So you eat more protein. And you pee out more calcium, which was thought to be detrimental to your bones, obviously, because it's like, all right, well, where's this calcium coming from?
1: I see. I see.
0: Although low protein intakes cause less calcium to be excreted, they also cause a reduction in calcium absorption through the intestine. So actually what we're finding today in the research is that eating a low protein diet actually causes you to absorb less calcium. Right. So, what's happening here is because eating a high protein diet is causing you to absorb more calcium, your body's getting rid of what it doesn't need.
1: Right. And the body adjusts when it needs to. Like, this is the big piece here, right?
0: Your body's going to use what it needs and get rid it's, of what it doesn't.
1: Exactly. That's my whole point. Like, I feel like we overthink so much. But
0: God, well, I mean, listen, it's it's uh the, I think the job of a researcher to like uncover every aspect of and mm-hmm. I, I, I like this stuff, right? So I like getting into the nitty gritty of like, all right, what exactly is happening in the body? What did we do yeah, yeah. before? Where are we going moving forward? So basically the net effect is a decrease in calcium balance due to a reduction in protein intake Mm -hmm. when you're consuming less protein. So higher protein diets are actually going to help you while increasing protein intake may increase calcium excretion. There's no evidence to support the claim that the calcium lost is from bone essentially is what I'm getting to here. Yeah. And overall net calcium balance is either unaffected or it's actually improved in a high protein diet. So I have seen studies on elderly individuals as well. Now, elderly individuals, when it comes to protein, it's interesting because I got into this research when I just I just finished my geriatric nutrition grad course, right? Mm-hmm. And I got into this research in terms of protein in the elderly. Mm-hmm. And actually what we find is that the elderly need to consume more protein because protein is less bioavailable to the elderly. Yes, so it, exactly. t- it takes more... So as you age it takes a higher protein consumption to increase muscle protein synthesis. And what we show is that uh, higher protein diets are associated with less hip fractures, which are always mm-hmm. something that we're looking at in older older adults because their bones are more fragile, they're more at risk, especially yeah. when you get into like 80, 90, and as we're living longer or towards 100, right? Yeah. As we age, like, okay, well, how do we support healthy bones through the life stages? And what we're finding is it's actually eating more protein
1: mm-hmm.
0: and resistance training. So yes. overall, we know that protein helps build lean mass in resistance trained individuals. So if you're doing resistance training and you increase your protein intake, you're going to build more muscle. Therefore, you're going to have stronger bones. We know that more muscle equals stronger, bo- stronger bones or resistance load from exercise equals stronger bones. Yep. Increased lean mass is associated with higher bone mineral density. So it's wise from an osteoporosis standpoint. That's for all those ladies ladies
1: too. Yeah.
0: And what I'll say, and Nicole, I think we've brought this up like a while ago in an episode, is that if you're worried, if you have a history of osteoporosis in your your family Mm -hmm. and you're worried about bone density, one of the most important things for you to do is resistance train as your bones are developing, right? So we talk about... Yeah, loss and bone turnover. Right. So essentially what happens through your life stages is as you're aging and you're approaching puberty, you are replacing more bone or more calcium into the bone and less you have less turnover. So you're losing less calcium. Right. And then at a certain age, I guess for women, it's probably closer to like more Mm postmenopausal. You start losing more bone than you're replacing. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. So it's wise for women and men, but women are more likely because of hormonal differences, yeah, to suffer from osteoporosis. It's wise to build up your bones as much as you can by doing resistance training and consuming adequate protein yeah. throughout your life stages, because once you've hit menopause, it's already too late.
1: Well, I think it, it too late. I hate that, but it's true, it's, but it's you- gonna be harder. You, you and can't, slower, you're not, and you're not going to be able to make it up. But
0: it's not, though. Because you're right. In my, because in my eyes, you're not building new bone at that time. I get you. I get at you. that time. So if you have strong bones going into menopause, yeah, you're going to lose more bone than you're replenishing, but you're going to outlive the bone loss right. because your bones are dense enough premenopausal.
1: Yes, 100% agree.
0: <laughs> All right. So that's, my, that's our spiel about the... The the bone loss I, to me it's a non-issue at this point and any yeah come on get over it people any Move new on. research that comes out on that is very doubtful that something's going to come out that say oh well actually it is bad uh, and this is research this is how it is it evolves we think certain things because we know certain mechanisms work for example right. the the whole kidney thing like yeah okay we know or we think we know it's actually interesting because the whole back to the whole kidney thing I don't mean to backtrack here but back to the whole kidney thing the meta-analysis actually said that. We recommend 0.8 grams per kilogram and no more than that of protein for people with renal disease in any stage. Mm -hmm. And we've been kind of back and forth on that. And the meta-analysis actually suggested that 0.8 grams per kilogram isn't helpful for the kidneys. And we might actually want to look at even for renal disease. This is the first time that I've read this in research. We might want to look at even higher protein, like 1.0 or 1.2 grams per kilogram, potentially because we're not seeing a benefit. And I think yeah. the, the issue is with renal disease is we don't really know. But back to the kidney thing is just because we don't know doesn't mean that we're supposed to assume outcomes just because something fits for somebody with renal disease doesn't mean that that's going to that same principle or rule is going to potentially apply to somebody with a perfectly healthy kidney. Yeah. All right. So let's get into number three. And this was an interesting one because I, and this isn't something that we've touched up on before. And this is yeah. something that I find from people who, you know, oh, well, I'm plant-based and I'm vegan. And this is why I said we're going to get into the vegans and vegetarians. All protein sources are created equal. This is more of a conversation of plant-based protein versus animal protein. And it has to do with amino acid composition and bioavailability scores. We know that most plant sources of protein are incomplete protein sources, missing either One of two essential amino acids. Now there are nine there is 22 amino acids. There's nine of them are essential. Why those nine are essential is because your body can't produce them and they need to be consumed through the diet. There are certain Mm -hmm. amino acids that your body can make, but there are ones that you have to consume in the diet. And two of these amino acids are lysine and methionine. Depending on what you're eating plant-wise, you're either going to get, usually, typically, there's a a couple of complete sources of protein, like quinoa has complete protein, I believe. um, That's why it's kind of, quote, a superfood, even though I'm like, it's not a superfood. It's a grain with more protein in it. That's the marketing. (laughs) Yeah. Soy is a complete protein and very high in protein. And in terms of bioavailability is actually the only plant source that I know of that has equal bioavailability Mm -hmm. as the, the highest uh, bioavailable uh, animal sources of protein. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically in nature you have like rice, which is missing. I forget which one it's missing, but it's either lysine or methionine. And then you combine rice and beans together and you have a a complete profile. Right. And that makes a complete protein. So um, this is why I always recommend like if you're doing a plant-based protein powder mm-hmm. to do a blend of rice and pea protein so that you're getting a complete source of protein. Now the branch chain amino acid quantity in a uh, plant-based protein versus uh, like a whey protein or some, or beef protein or an animal-based protein, like a powder we're talking, right? Supplements. In terms of building lean mass, you're always going to have the optimal outcome with whey protein because it's derived from milk, and that's the highest bioavailability. Milk and eggs are the two highest in terms of bioavailability, and then meat kind of trickles down from there uh, based on one way of measuring. So it's wise if you're looking for a plant-based protein, don't just do hemp protein, don't just do rice protein, don't just do pea protein, do something that has a combination of things. In terms of measuring protein bioavailability, there are two ways to measure it. One of them is one that I you know, was well-versed going into this because I, this is one that we've been using since 1993. Uh, the first way is called the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. And this is the method that we've relied on, like I said, since 1993. And there is a newer way that's been proposed in the research that suggests, hey, like we need to look at, and that that's called the digestible, indispensable amino acid score, and it's been proposed that maybe we replace the old way of doing it. Let me talk about the old way first. So the old way of doing things, it just measured amino acid composition, the quantities of certain amino acids and essential amino acids, and uh, how bioavailable it is based on the amino acid composition of a specific food, which in that... It measured eggs and milk are the two highest in terms of bioavailability. Again, using the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score. And that gives it a score of 1.0, which is the highest that you, a food can earn. And, okay. then, and then salmon, I'm not really sure about other fish, but salmon is going to be like the next in terms of bioavailability and then beef and then chicken are next. And then the only plant source, like we said earlier, that is even close to that is a 1.0 score for, uh, soy protein, which is in line with the most bioavailable, which is eggs and milk. And I just want to highlight not raw eggs because raw eggs, actually, you need to denature the proteins in order Mm -hmm. for them to be more bioavailable. So Mm -hmm. cooked eggs we're talking about in terms of eggs. So for those of you guys, Drinking egg whites. And actually, (laughs) Nicole, it's interesting because I had this question a while ago and I was like, what about pasteurized egg whites? Yeah. They're liquid, Mm -hmm. but they're they're not entirely cooked. Yeah. It just takes some heat to treat because pasteurized pasteurization is a heat treatment. Mm -hmm. So what I found that is if you're drinking raw eggs, first of all, you're probably at risk for salmonella. So I don't do that. But <laughs> if you're drinking pasteurized eggs, like from a carton, that is considered enough to increase the bioavailability of the egg white. So if you want to do pasteurized eggs in your protein shake, by right. all means, you can do that. That was just an interesting, an interesting find. I used to, do, I used to do that. Back <laughs> Did in you back. really? I actually used to crack Ugh. the eggs and pour in the whites into my shake. And then I started buying them pasteurized. Yeah. Thankfully, I never got sick from that. But, you know, I don't really know what the odds of are of actually getting sick from an egg i don't
1: know but it just doesn't sound good to me
0: <laughs> yeah it's a little texture it gets foamy in the blender
1: yeah well that. yeah that makes that doesn't sound so bad but i mean i don't know i just ugh. yeah
0: it is what it is all right so You're anyway hardcore. i digress so one of the primary differences between the new way that's been uh, presented we're still using the old way but the new way that's in some of the research uh, which is the digestible indispensable amino acid score is that uh, this system accounts for anti-nutrients, which is something that we're looking at now, which like phytates and oxalates that it will either bind to amino acids, uh, that are in plants or bind to minerals. They do might bind to certain minerals and then make it a little bit more difficult to absorb. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is something that they're looking at and they're like, okay, well, we should look at anti-nutrients because it's not just the amino acids, because what if we're not absorbing these amino acids because of things that they're bound to. I don't know if anti-nutrients, I don't know how much of a difference it makes with anti-nutrients. I do know that uh, like the paleo enthusiasts are big on anti, don't eat certain foods. It's not paleo because there's anti-nutrients in it. I think that they're largely overstated in the paleo community. Mm -hmm. And I have heard in the paleo community, they go as far as to say, well, these anti-nutrients, they're not just blocking you from absorbing the nutrients which okay i'll take that a little less absorption a little bit less bioavailability of of let's say the minerals and vitamins like zinc iron things like that but they're actually also binding to things in your body and stealing them from your body which i'm like where I, I don't know where you Come got on. that information from but i i don't know anything about that shit in any case the newer system based on that actually ranks things a little bit differently so your beef and chicken is more bioavailable than eggs and milk on the and the new scale or the new grade on, on, on the new scale, which is the digestible, indispensable amino acid score. The point that I'm trying to make here is that the plants score lower in terms of amino acid composition. Therefore, they are less bioavailable. So for somebody to say, and I've heard this before, I can get adequate protein from plants Yes, this is true. You absolutely can. But in order to get equal amount gram for gram, if right. you're lo- if you're looking at an animal source of protein versus a plant source of protein, if you were eating, let's say, 100 grams a day just to kind of keep it even, mm-hmm. if you're eating 100 grams a day of animal protein and 100 grams a day of plant protein, mm-hmm. you're going to get more bang for your buck from the animal protein you're going to have to eat, and I'm just going to throw out a random number, maybe 130 grams of protein or 150 grams of protein. I don't know the exact number. We'd have to look at each food that you're eating and the bioavailability, right? And that would just take forever. But you would have to eat significantly more in grams of protein from plant-based protein in order for it to be equivalent to your animal source protein. So not all protein sources are created equal. The other piece that I want to say about this is we often think, and this is where I want to get into, okay, well, what is a primary source of protein and how do we define it? So primary sources of protein are typically looked at as, do they have a complete amino acid profile? Mm -hmm. But I take it a step further and say, well, what is the primary macronutrient in that food, right? Yes. Because the issue with plant-based proteins is that most of them are going to be, aside from a few exceptions, like- um if you do what is that wheat gluten seitan right oh, if you seitan, do, yeah yeah if you do seitan right mm-hmm. then that is just going to be extracted gluten so gluten is protein mm-hmm. uh so that's going to be just protein mostly and then soy yeah if you if you do like tofu yeah that's going to be extracted protein with a little bit of carbs and the more uh and i the, the more firm the the block is yeah, the, the more yeah. protein is in the tofu Yep. But outside of that, like, I mean, we have people here like clients that'll come to us and they'll say, oh, well, beans. Yeah, oh, yeah, beans or beans are a source of protein. Yeah. But for a cup of beans, you've got 45 grams of carbs and right. 15 grams of protein. Right. So they are supplementary protein, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be considered a primary source of protein. They're a primary source of carb. And the same thing with nut butters, right? Like, yeah, yeah. oh, well, peanuts are high in protein. Relative, yeah, to other, <laughs> yeah, relative to other proteins. Yeah. But it's primarily, uh, I, I think I, I use peanut butter as an example. I think it's like six grams of protein in two tablespoons and mm-hmm. 16 grams of fat. Right. So what is it? A source of protein or a source of fat? So you have to look at that because you don't want to overconsume total calories in a day just right. to get your protein intake in.
1: Which unless, most people do. yeah.
0: Unless you're trying to be in a surplus, but even in that way, you're, you're going to be in a very large surplus. Right. And then you have to account for, well, I need to eat extra protein for it to be equivalent to my meat sources. Right. Yeah. So
1: you just have to be smarter about how you utilize those sources of protein. And I say this to clients all the time. I have a lot of vegans in my caseload. You just have to be more creative. You have to put things together differently and you have to be aware because beans for, uh, I hear beans all the time. It drives me crazy. I'm like, okay, let's give it a try. If you're, if you're mixing foods, if you're mixing proteins, like you said, as a supplement and you blend them together, then you can get your complete source and you can be aware of your carbohydrates and fat sources along with it. You just have to be smarter about how you do it. That's all.
0: Yeah. And I'm not saying it's impossible, right? Obviously. No, like it's po- too. definitely it's not, possible. Listen, I have vegan and vegetarian clients yeah. and they make it work and they figure yeah. it out and some clients need to supplement more than others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they figure it out and they get results. Listen, yeah. is the it, in all reality is the difference between, you know, let's say 20% lower or 15% lower uh, bioavailability. Like is, is that going to make or break your results? Probably not. Unless you're like competitive athlete, competitive bodybuilder, then you're going to have to be a lot more diligent. But mm-hmm. for your average person listening to this podcast, Just be conscious and mindful of the fact that this does exist and not all don't be foolish and just think protein is protein because it's not. No.
1: And I also would add consistency to that as well from, you know, if you're doing animal protein, it's easier to consistently hit your protein goals. It's a lot harder, I find. And this, I'm just speaking for myself and my clients for the vegan vegetarian, trying to consistently consume the same amount of protein with the different variables that they have to mix and to make it a complete protein that it, it's harder. It is. And it's just it, like I said, it's a different way of going about it. But if they're on top of the consistency of it, they're consistently getting their adequate protein, which protein in general, we struggle as coaches to get people to eat because of the myths that we're talking about.
0: Should we go on to the next one?
1: Yeah. What are we number four?
0: Number four. You must consume protein immediately post-workout.
1: Yes. We talked about this before.
0: We have, we got videos on this on Instagram. So yeah. this is based on the anabolic window, which I am guilty of. And this is where I get into Nicole again, about like things that I used to tell clients and mm-hmm. used to tell people based on the information that we have. Yeah. And then being up to date as a coach Yeah. and, and not Telling people ancient information. So, (laughs) this is based on the anabolic window, which was once thought to be within an hour of working out. Mm -hmm. The thought was that muscle protein synthesis is elevated post workout when you work out. Okay, so two scenarios in which you're elevating muscle protein synthesis A, you work out, that elevates muscle protein synthesis, that makes your body take protein and amino acids, turn it into muscle. B, you're consuming protein. Protein, eating protein, also elevates muscle protein synthesis. So, you combine the two. You just worked out, right? And it it makes sense to think this way. Yeah. You you just worked out. You've elevated muscle protein synthesis. Now you want to maximize on that by consuming protein because you have this anabolic window and that window is going to close in an hour because muscle protein synthesis is going to be elevated for the hour after you work out. (laughs) Yeah. So why not take advantage of this opportunity? And Mm -hmm. this turned into a huge boom in the supplement industry where they're like, you've got to have whey protein right after your workout buy yep. our products they mm-hmm. totally took that opportunity and ran with it
1: of course they did money money money
0: i would have too i don't blame it <laughs> right and the research to, to be fair the research at the time right was, was on was supporting this now what we know today is that that window doesn't close within an hour for people it's typically about 36 hours now does it start to taper off at, at a certain point of sure course. like at 12 hours it's less than it's it's lower than it was at hour 1 at 24 hours it's lower than it was at 12 hours and at mm-hmm. 36 and 48 hours it's lower than it was at 24 hours
1: yeah it's like Muscle- you were saying before you want to if you're if you think you need to optimize that time then that's why you would think it makes sense to do it
0: but the window is not closing within an hour and i would say it's safe to say you can probably wait till your next meal if it's like two yeah i say hours that to later. clients
1: too i'm like you got two three hours just get your next meal in you'll be fine
0: and i've heard this analogy that we used to think that it was an anabolic window but it's actually more like a anabolic garage door <laughs> Like it just swings open when you work out it swings open and it's like all right cool you got plenty of time someone's well, gonna the, push that button huh? and that that door is gonna close very slowly What I will say is in terms of this is you should not even be concerned with this concept if you're not following a few rules, which we've talked about often on our podcast. And one is your total protein intake is adequate enough to support, you know, sustained muscle protein synthesis throughout the day. And speaking about sustained muscle protein synthesis throughout the day, protein feeding frequency is a thing and anywhere from three to five meals is going to be that sweet spot of, okay, you're you're going to maximize and capitalize on that. If you're not consuming adequate protein frequently throughout the day, you're, you don't even worry about what you're doing after your workout. Yeah,
1: don't worry about the window after your workout if you're not getting it in throughout the day.
0: And now what I will say is if you're working out in a fasted state, for some of us who wake up super early in the morning and- no, working out in a fasting state is not going to lead to more fat loss or more weight loss. It's total calories at the end of the day is what's really going to matter. So let me just squash that now. But if you do work out for reasons of like, Hey, I wake up super early in the morning and I work out fasted, or I just feel better working out fasted.
1: Yeah. That's more of
0: it. Right. Or, or if you just, it's been a while since you've eaten, right. And you don't have Mm -hmm. amino acids left in your bloodstream from the meal that you've eaten then it might be wise to eat closer to the end of that workout. And maybe you want to do it within an hour or two max. Um, but there's there's no rule that there's going to be a window that's going to close. Yeah. And the last thing I want to touch up on today is there's no such thing as too much protein is the, our last myth, our fifth myth. There is because total calories matter. So if you're over-consuming protein, you can potentially be over-consuming total calories for the day that's still going to be a thing if you're in a small surplus because you want to increase lean muscle mass that's fine but you don't want to be in too large like there's a thought or there has been a thought that you can't, like protein's not going to turn to fat any excess calories that you're consuming will be stored for energy as later and can be turned into fat
1: right too much is too much no matter what it is
0: the other piece to that which I'll say is skeletal muscle protein synthesis is typically maximized by anywhere from 25 to 35 grams of high quality protein during a meal. So there's also too much protein per meal. If your average Joe eating 50, 60, 70 grams, and I see people do this all the time. Yeah. If you're eating super high amounts of protein in a meal, your body's not really going to, it's it's going to, there's like a misconception that's not going to absorb it. It is going to absorb it, but it's not going to utilize it. Mm-hmm. So it's wise to stick to 25 to 35 grams, depending on who you are. I do think that some larger individuals with more muscle can get away with more. I think the cap for me has been like 40 to 45 grams.
1: Yeah, I was just going to say 40 of, to of 45 is kind of my, meal.
0: you yeah. can get away with that, but anything like 50 and above, yeah, you might be teetering on too much protein in a single meal.
1: Yeah, see, some of I've had uh, male clients that have come to me that I've really tried. I've really busted through that myth with, because they were only eating two meals a day, so they were getting like, oh my gosh, an insane amount of protein in those two meals to hit their meals. Their uh, excuse me, protein intake for the entire day. I'm like, let's break that up a little bit more.
0: Yeah. It's going to be hard. Like you want to be able to maximize and listen, like we said, that also goes to the feeding frequency thing that we said mm-hmm. where, you know, three to five meals. We don't really know. We used to think, and we talked about this in Bill Campbell's research that yeah. we got eight, six, seven six, seven times a day to maximize right. your muscle gains. And it's not really like we find that there's a threshold and yeah. it's below six meals a day and nicole i mean that's it those are our five myths on protein i just really wanted to highlight those because protein is a a super crucial essential uh a food group or macronutrient it's the the strategy that we take as coaches in terms of fat loss and increasingly muscle mm-hmm. masses we do drive uh, a decent amount of protein so for anybody who has some concerns around protein or has heard some misconceptions around protein uh this is based on the current research that we have now and you know our thorough investigation of the data that we uh presently have currently have today and uh you know that's pretty much it nicole anything else you want to add
1: um i just wanted to i guess i would just add to for our listeners to don't try not to believe the hype and all the fear behind food like you know, we always talk about carbs. People are so afraid to eat carbs. But then you also have protein has its its issues, too, behind fearing how much and too much. Listen to your body would be my last thing to add to that. Like, don't be afraid to try and eat more and see what happens.
0: Listen to your heart. <laughs> what does how, that go?
1: Uh, I don't know. You are the how's you're it? the singer here. I am All right. Not.
0: On that note, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.